Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Everybody and welcome back to New Books in European Studies. I'm Liz Spragans, a host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Nicholas Jones about his new book, Staging Habla de Negros, Radical Performance of the African Diaspora in Early Modern Spain. Nick is an assistant professor of Spanish and Africana Studies and affiliated faculty in Latin American Studies at Bucknell University and his research explores the agency, subjectivity, and performance of Black diasporic identities in early modern Iberia in the Ibero-Atlantic world. His work enlists the strategies, methodologies, and insights of Black studies into the service of early modern studies and vice versa. He's published on these themes in Hispanic Review and the Journal for Early Modern Cultural Studies, as well as co-editing a volume on early modern Black diasporic studies with Cassandra Smith and Miles Greer. Nick Jones, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, Nick, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Sure. Uh, Let's see. Um, Well, I'm originally from Seattle, uh, Seattle, Washington, Um, And then, yeah, after Seattle, after high school in Seattle, I had always been interested and had an attraction uh, for the East Coast. And so for college, I went went to Haverford College for my undergrad and then for my uh, PhD. And then, yeah, at both universities or both colleges um that's where a lot of my interest and the legacy and presence representation of uh black africans sort of came about and how did you particularly get interested in in black africans in early modern iberian literature in in particular yes well as i begin so the anecdote anecdote with which i open staging habla de negros um pretty basically recounts and retells this for me at least it's very awe-inspiring life-changing um encounter um that i had with this um stranger and so i was studying abroad in seville um i went twice uh in high school and I did with the same family um, twice in, in Intercambio. And so one afternoon, one day I was waiting for uh, the bus to go back home. And then this random elderly lady comes up to me, grabs my arm. And, and as I, you know, translating into Spanish and English, um, you know, for the audience, she pretty much says and, ex- and emphasizes to me that, you know, even though, you know, she looks white um, on the outside, on the inside, she has black blood running through her veins. And she began to share with me 
that her grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents were Black of African descent and where the area was, where, you know, where we were at that time was um, pretty much in the tourist hub, um, city center, right across from the uh, Torre de Oro on the Guadalquivir River. And, 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 and again, this lady was explaining to me that, you know, in, this, in, the area, in the area where we were, where we were standing, the Arenal district, uh, where was where many blacks, both enslaved and free, mulatos and other um, African descended people um, lived and worked, were enslaved, uh, so on and so forth. So for me, you know, as a teenager, as an adolescent at that time, connecting that experience to what I had already known that again, the legacy and, and lives of, 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 of Black Spaniards, if you will, you know, existed. It was important and valuable. And it was something, you know, at a very early age, I had a hunch that there was something really interesting with Blackness happening in Spain that redirected the focus attention from Latin America, which was, you know, always another interest of mine because again and also in the preface i kind of get it i share other personal anecdotes but you know blackness in the spanish-speaking world nine times out of ten is always um studied within focused on um the caribbean and latin america and such and, and again for me Again, with that study, with that study abroad experience as a high school, you know, as a teenager in high school, again, that was really, you know, impactful for me and always left a huge imprint. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, that was a that was a really fascinating story in in the introduction and as you retell it, um, and it makes such a, a sort of beautifully personal argument for um, one of the emerging conversations in the field, you know, where it's a, it's an argument for the relevance of the Eastern side of our sort of transatlantic conversation about the early modern world. Um, so, um, building on that, I wonder, I wonder if you could, um, move from there and, and tell us a little bit about, um, how you specifically came to write the book that you did um, and and how how the questions that you set out to answer um, emerged from that experience well so the actual mono so the monograph that you know we have now staging out of the negros had a previous life as my uh, dissertation that I did at NYU with um, Gigi uh, Dopico and um, Mary Louise Pratt. And so I worked very closely with the two of them on the, you know, at that time in that previous life on the dissertation. And so with, uh, you know, so with the argumentation of the book and what I, what, you know, I've, what I come to, 
in the book is that I wanted to highlight and give voice to Black language this Af- in this Africanized Castilian. Um, and I knew very, even in that previous life when I was writing of the book, when I was, you know, doing the dissertation or when I was dissertating, I knew, you know, at that time I had been reading like a lot of Zora Neale Hurston, Langston Hughes, James Baldwin, uh, Black writers from the Harlem Renaissance. And so I was really struck in those texts and with those writers and thinkers, theorists, um, I was, I learned from them to look for and how to read for Black voices, um, Black life through language, through, I mean, obviously, you know, in that, in the context of the Harlem Renaissance, we're talking about Black English. Um, But for me, I saw a lot of overlap and parallel Um, for, I mean, for some, you know, you know, might see as, you know, a forced reading or whatnot, but I don't think it is in that sense. And so thinking about one of the arguments of the book that there's, that the African diaspora is and was alive and well in early modern Spain um, overlaps and, and, and sort of vibes and converses with um work that had been done and is still being done about African-American vernacular English, uh, so on and so forth. So again, with the little bit that I was trying to, you know, make sense of in the dissertation, again, that is being able to extract, um, you know, Black life, Black voices, Black cultural survival, so on and so forth. I do that much more um, aggressively, if you will, you know, in the book. And so for me, that was that, that was really important. And I really wanted to highlight that because, again, it's like it's a difficult balance um, to address and make sense of the clearly, you know, racist um burlesques that happen in Habla de Negros uh, materials, whether it's in poetry, whether it's in uh, theater, uh, so on and so forth, even in, and even in some prose texts as well. Um, but for me, you know, we, we in these books, in these, you know, works, we take risks. And so for me, that was one of the main, you know, risks that I was willing to take. And I think in the body of my work as well, it's a risk that I will continue to take in future projects. Um, You know, for me, I'm interested in highlighting, again, you know, Black life, highlighting the ways in which um, early modern Spanish, you know, whiteness, if you will, um, or dominant culture or the dominant culture at the time um, whether it's expressed in style, aesthetics, language, thought, you know, I really wanted to, again, highlight and see how, on the one hand, these, you know, so-called white Spanish writers are accessing this language, portraying it. And then on the flip side, how, again, this African diasporic Blackness um, especially when we take into account demographics and the high populations of um, of of 
both enslaved and free Blacks living in in Castile um, at the time, how their presence um, impacts and, and, again, vibes with and meshes with um, a more so um, standard um, literary structure, so in, in historical and cultural structures. Yeah, that was one of the um, arguments that I found really, really fascinating in your introduction. Um, and I was wondering, so to to what extent, you addressed this um, to some extent in your introduction, but I was hoping you could talk a little bit about to what extent, you know, the whiteness as a category existed in early modern Spain um, and how you see you know, your definition of, of whiteness or, or the kind of dominant um, Spanish culture mapping onto um, other kind of fraught categories of, of racial or religious identity that were already underwriting questions of identity or that, that concurrently were underwriting questions of identity on the Iberian Peninsula. You know, and, and you, I think you talk in interesting ways about... Um, I think drawing on on Hurston, the extent to which kind of reifying categories of black and white in this context um, is is an interesting theoretical move. No, precisely. So uh, again, for me with whiteness, and again, and not that I want to you know focus on the in- introduction, but I think excuse not the introduction but the dissertation. But I think what made it somewhat easy for me to wrestle with these, with the category of, you know, whiteness in the book, especially at the book phase. Um, I think I always had, I don't know, I think just as much as, you know, Blackness as a construction, as a category in early modern Iberia, you know, is very flexible and malleable, you know, it's also important to, and, you know, when I, you know, I know some, you know, may disagree or, you know, take issue with this, but, you know, it's also on the flip side, you know, the construction and, and, and the meaning of whiteness in early modern Iberia was also flexible. And what I mean by that is, you know, again, I'm thinking in ideological terms ideological constructions for me you know it's really it was in writing staging habla de negros the analyses um and conclusions that i make and the close readings that i do about you know whiteness especially in chapter three with uh, you know on black women um is that you know whiteness is at stake as well whiteness isn't as you know pure and authentic or stable as, especially as a 21st century society, you know, we take for granted and let off the hook. Um, so I think in this sort of, I don't know, in a reflexive way, if that makes sense, if we're going, you know, I the my centering Blackness also indirectly um, sheds light on 
what whiteness does, what it means, what it articulates, what how it can be performed. So uh, I think perhaps in this very axiomatic kind of way, that's the word that's, you know, I'm looking at, again, these very binarized, these two binarized categories um, in axiomatic ways, because you can't talk about one without talking about the other. Um, and then also to complicate the category of whiteness more, it doesn't play out, and neither does blackness, but with whiteness, in my opinion, with the materials and texts that I analyze and work through, they just, whiteness can't be reduced to North U.S. North American meanings and norms and so on and so forth. Um, and so, and I think, yeah, so I, I mean, I would, that was one big um problem and question uh, body of representation that I worked through or was, you know, trying to work through um, in the book. And so, yeah, I don't know if that, you know, answers the question well, but. Yeah, I think it, I think it definitely gets at um, what I was hoping that you would talk about. Um, You know, Relatedly, I was wondering, so you bring up this really famous um, maxim that I feel like all students of early modern Iberia hear from Dumas, that Africa begins at the Pyrenees. And I was hoping, um, kind of by way of situating your book within the fields of sort of Iberian studies, Africana studies, transatlantic, colonial Latin American studies, um, can you talk a little bit about how you were thinking either about that maxim or how, how you see your book intervening in, in these kind of intersecting fields within the early modern um, transatlantic Mediterranean Iberian worlds? Yeah, absolutely. I think very bluntly in the, yeah, cause I talk about that in the, talk about that maxim in the introduction. And I think for me, the bottom line is that, especially with the stakes and the intervention that staging Habla de Negros makes, is that, you know, I it's like for me, yes, Africa, you know, did or does begin at the Pyrenees in the sense that it's important and it behooves us, again, as scholars, as teachers, professors, to start, you know, teaching and instructing and teaching and, and, and exposing our students, whether it's at the undergraduate or graduate level, and with respect to the graduate level, training our, you know, MA students and PhD students to take seriously and account for the category of sub-Saharan African Blackness. And so when, so my sense of um, defending Dumas' claim that Africa began at the Pyrenees is that, you know, in 711, when Tariq, you know, sets foot in, you know, in the Iberian Peninsula, and, you know, 711, when, you know, as we all know, when the first, um, you know, troops and movements and military, you know, movements and such of um, of Islamic 
Iberia, you know, begins, it's important to imagine and account for that there were dark-skinned sub-Saharan African people, Muslims, um, present, visible. And I think for me, that's what I'm trying to recapture, um, account for. Um, because again, in other you know, publication, other publications and things that I've written, and even thinking back, you know, as an undergrad and taking survey courses on medieval and golden age Spain, um, it never sat well with me the way in which sort of like the image of the Moor, you know, this this classic. Um, almost typified and cliched image, quote unquote, image of the Moor only was, you know, we were only taught to view that quote unquote so-called image of the Moor to look a certain way, to have a certain hair type, you know what I mean? And so for me, again, going back to Dumas, um, and, and again, and we know this, I mean, there are, you know, different documents and other, especially medieval scholars of Iberia who've written about um, sub-Saharan Africans in Iberia that, you know, my point being is that there were Black people, sub-Saharan Africans um, present, visible um, in, you know, in medieval Iberia, in which then makes us, again, rethink and question the meaning of las tres culturas. And so that's what I was getting at a few seconds ago about what never sat well with me is that, you know, this idea of, you know, the, the las tres culturas en convivencia is that while that is true and so on, and that hypothesis, you know, is true and, and played out, for me, it just never sat well um the um, the ignoring and the muting of um, sub-Saharan African, you know, blackness. I think, and so again, in this, you know, in staging Abra de Negros, I make it a goal to recount, to account for that, to retell um, those, even if it's anecdotal, even if it's in a footnote. And where possible in the meat and body of the of the of the text, you know, I really make a, a concerted effort effort to tell retell those stories and make that information uh, front and center when the context is appropriate and when it applies to whatever um, analysis or close reading I'm doing um, at that given moment. Um, so again, you know, lastly, yeah, I think so. I, you know, absolutely yes to Dumas' um, conviction and claim there. Yeah, it's a fascinating inversion because I feel like in in a lot of the sort of standard seminars, either in graduate school or with undergraduates, that that maxim tends to get trotted out as you know, oh, wasn't Dumas such a racist? Or you know, it's it's trotted out in order to disprove it, and so. Yeah, I found your I found your reconsideration of it really fascinating. Um, so, speaking of the sort of particular ways in which you um, make visible and and remind us of the presence of sub-Saharan Africans um, 
on the on the early modern Iberian Peninsula. I was hoping, you know, in your introduction, you list this vast corpus of texts that traffic in habla de negros or that um, have representations of sub-Saharan African um, characters and figures. I was wondering how you decided on the archive that you finally selected for your project. Um, and if you could talk about what sort of across the, the three body chapters, what unites these texts that you're choosing to read? That's great. Yeah, fat, great question. So with, I mean, so to immediately answer that question, it co- it really comes back to the great, um, to the fantastic reader reports that I got. Because at first, the first initial draft of the manuscript that I submitted um, included poetry. And then also another chapter that had to do with Habla de Negros in early colonial uh, Spanish America. And so with one of the valuable reader reports, the, read the, 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 the evaluator said to make the book tighter and more focused, you know, take out, just focus on theater, you know, make a choice, focus on theater because there's this really, you know, the reader, the reviewer really liked the chapter on blackface. And so there was the suggestion of putting black, the blackface front and center. And then as a result, just focus on theater. And then the second issue um, or, you know, the really jewel of advice given by that same reader was to take out, to focus on one geographical space. And so take out the chapter or chapters on Habla de Negros and early colonial uh, Spanish American texts and just focus it all on Spain and just do uh, theater or in the case of the Reynosa chapter, performative poetry. And so that's the final product, you know, so that's, yeah, the final product that, you know, we have now with the book, which again, I'm very happy with um, because again, at that stage, yeah, I was still kind of worried about, you know, organization, how am I going to bring all this, thread all this together? And so bringing, going back to the threading and how the three chapters overlap and, 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 connect and speak to one another. For me, it's really through material culture um, and materiality, doing a material analysis of this Africanized Castilian. Um, And I do that because I think in one sense, it's my way, the focusing on material culture and doing this material analysis allows me to theorize and make better sense of how sub-Saharan African Blackness was mapped out, portrayed in early modern Spain. And so for me, and this kind of also plays, gets into my second monograph, um, but that would be one, one theme or aspect that unites um, each you know, each chapter is, you know, materiality and material culture. Um, and then what else? And then I would also say another, you know, an important aspect 
would be the methodology the methodology that I you know work with and that again focuses on critical race theory um black feminist theorists um and also just in general critical theory so I think the ways in which I read and work through the materiality of Habla de Negros or this early modern Africanized Castilian also relies on what different theorists, for example, you know, in food studies are doing with the work that I do, the analyses that I do with food um, in the Reynosa chapter, thinking about sound that I work with very closely um, in the chapter on blackface. Um, yeah, so food, sound, makeup, cosmetics, cosmetic, cosmeticized practices, props. So I would think that those two elements go hand in hand as far as uniting the chapters together. Yeah, absolutely. Um so as we move on to the content of the individual chapters, um, I thought you might begin by outlining for the audience, which again is, is more is European studies, so not everybody who, who hears this is going to be nearly as deeply steeped in, you know, Comedia and, and early modern Iberian theater. Um, you know, could you talk a little bit about like Comedias, Teatro Breve, Entre Meses, um, and and highlight the role of Habla de Negros in the in the genres and subgenres that are most of interest to you in in that first chapter, uh, black skin acts feasting on blackness, staging linguistic blackface. Absolutely. So this so with the blackface chapter, this chapter came about because. It dawned on me that, you know, you can't, that have this language, this linguistic blackness, if you will, works hand in hand with the stage and what we, and what audiences and spectators see on stage, what they sense on stage, uh, so on and so forth. And so for those who aren't familiar with, with the genre, with the comedia, where the you know the big three act plays, um, that you know you know in sixteen oh nine after Lope de Vega's um, academic treatise or essay on you know remaking his Arte Nuevo um, of, of revamping and revitalizing and making more you know making theater. Um, you know, much more you know, entertaining and accessible, but also economically profitable and such. Um, you know, I you know I, I focus on that to a certain extent, but for me, where Habla de Negros really comes up and where the where the form pops up most um, appears in this subgenre, or I would really even say a subgenre. It's you know a a genre that was well received and many playwrights um, produced, you know, great, great works would was 
was the um, genre of the Teatro Breve, or this brief theater. And so with the brief theater, there were different forms of the uh, Teatro Breve, such as, you know, the entremes, the short skits, and then you had other other forms that comprised of, um, you know, dances or and so on and so forth. There were a handful of different um, forms of, you know, perform- performative expression and aesthetics in the Teatro Breve. But specifically for the Habla de Negros, um, it popped up most in the entremes, these short skit acts, these short skit plays, where, again, as a form, you know, Black actors or the roles or characters of um, of Blacks, again, they, you know, came up, pop, were, you know, were present, showed up a lot, and oftentimes, you know, these characters spoke in Habla de Negros, and so Lope de Rueda did a handful, you know, had a handful of these texts. Um, you had some that were anonymous. Um, you had others, such as Simon Aguado, his Entremes de los Negros. And so, yeah, it was, uh, you know, again, with the Teatro Breve, it was a form that, obviously, the one of the goals was to entertain the audience and comic relief, so on and so forth. Um, you know, it was, the forum was very popular and the black care and the, and the roles that portrayed um, black men and women were oftentimes, you know, were hits with, you know, with the audience. Great. Yeah. Um, so within within these different theatrical genres, um, in this in this first chapter, you you kind of have three big sections. Where first you start off by theorizing blackface. How does blackface um, manifest in in early modern Spain? Um, what is what are some of the uh, ways in which it's materially enacted? in this context um, and then we move to um, dance um, and musicality. And then you finish with um, an analysis of black corporeality in the Bothal's black mouth. And I wondered if you could kind of walk us through what the, the trajectory of your argument is in this first chapter. Yeah, absolutely. So as far as the trajectory in chapter one, pretty much I deemed it necessary and important to, again, theorize and to create knowledge and theory about blackface as it was performed and understood on uh, early modern Spanish stages. And I, and I think for me, and I know, and again, you know, within the field and, you know, for many, I mean, both comedia scholars and those who aren't, I think rule in general, many, you know, scholars and students alike hear the word blackface and, and automatically associate it with again, 19th, 20th century, um, United States blackface. And so for me, 
that was a big must and need to lay out from the get-go in that opening section is, again, in my own terms, um, to again, to theorize and to make sense of, you know, what's going on with um, Blackface during this period, during the period to really highlight the materiality of it, looking at different cosmetic receipts, uh, I'm translating from Spanish to um, English, not receipts, but um, recipes, the different cosmetic recipes that were used. Um, also the performance history. I think for me in this, especially in the first section of the Blackface chapters, chapter one, the performance history is really important um, as opposed to just doing this very conventional flat reading that, you know, oh, all of the Blackface was racist, which again, don't get me wrong. There, there, you know, there's a reading for that. That interpretation is clearly and obviously valid. But for me, there's much more going on. There's much more to say. There's a much more sophisticated and nuanced conclusion to arrive at than just, you know, oh, X playwright or X play was racist because there was blackface. And so, again, in this first section, it's important, again, to really highlight and really theorize and create new knowledge about what was going on um, on these stages. What also the ebbs and flows of, 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 of creation for a playwright, you know, whether to blackface, not to blackface, when blackface is called for, do we use a black actor or do we blacken up a white um, actor or actress, and it, and when and, and when we work in the archive and work closely with documents from performance history at the time, is we learned that again, it, it wasn't that simple. It was very complex, and certain difficult decisions had to be made for um, many of these um, play playwrights, um, and even in the grand scheme of things, when we look at counter-reformation society, early modern Spanish society, um, you know, more broadly, there also were a lot of contradictions because there were some plays that obviously called for blackface in the most contrived racist ways. And then there were other texts and documents that show improve otherwise where you know you have black characters speaking who are aware of what's going on yet they're critiquing the practice and the act or you'll have white actors who also are aware that you know blackface isn't needed or let's say a black dance is needed for the ultimate uh success in artistic prowess and beauty of the of the theatrical work as a whole so again in that first section i think you know that was really important for me to make those uh interventions then let's see and i think as a more so of a close reading there's the um section on simon aguado's entremes de los negros 
Um, and again, with that section, I you know really wanted to do a new rereading, a new close reading, um, focusing on food and other material elements and aspects uh, with that entremes uh, with that with that skit. And then there's a, then the other section on los bailes los bailes negros also. For me, it was important again to theorize and to think through and highlight to center um, black dances, and this is where I get into the argument about the, as one example, uh, the African diaspora being alive and well in early modern Spain is through these dances. Thinking about transatlantic movements back and forth from early colonial uh, Havana into port cities such as Cadiz, Sevilla, even Malaga at different points in time, um, even dances that are coming from early colonial Brazil into Lisbon, and then from Lisbon get sort of trafficked and, and dispersed into um, Castile. And so, yeah, I had a lot of fun, yeah. I had a lot of fun in general writing, yeah, this first chapter, and especially the the dance, the section on the bailes de negros. It was really, yeah, it was a, yeah, fun doing that. And just reading through the dances, learning about them, and doing a lot of the etymological work with dictionaries and, and such. And then, let's see, the la- I think the last section, um, or the section that I used to conclude focuses sort of it links the past with the present um as with a lot of my work i always make an effort to make sense of and connect who for some you know this old boring early modern past with the present and so bringing into conversation with just questions because i still yet you know have the answer to them but really thinking about, okay, how do we get to, you know, what's the trajectory, the evolution of a more so nuanced and complicated blackening up or racial impersonation of sub-Saharan African blackness that we see in the 16th and 17th centuries to the 21st century where, let's say, you know, January 6th, then it's Reyes Magos, and then there's a float and a parade, and we see Baltasar, you know, black, you know, in blackface, or even more so recently, where you know, what we see on social media of a room full of black faced Baltasars. And so for me, I leave chapter one open, like the question the answers open for us as a field, um, for us as scholars, uh, better yet, to make sense of that and to reach our own conclusions about the implications and the trajectory of um, Blackface racial impersonation way back then in the early modern period to nowadays. That's great. Thank you for that really wonderful summary. Um, speaking of, of racially performative acts, um, both early modern and present, I, um, I thought we could move into chapter two, which, as you mentioned um, a while ago, 
deals with with performative poetry um, in in Rodrigo de Reynosa's uh, poetic collection. And I was wondering um, if you could give us a sense of what your argument in that chapter is um, and how it builds off of the the argument that you've built out so wonderfully for chapter one. Yes. So the second chapter on Reynosa pretty much really focuses on um, Black signification, signifying. In the very first, so the very, very first time I read um, Reynosa's uh, Coplas, the one, the body, the 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 text that I analyzed in chapter two. I immediately, what immediately came to mind was black signifying and think going back. And this is a lot of the theory. I mean, there have been a handful within African American studies, handful of linguists, and from Geneva Smitherman, um, her work on you know black talk and black signifying, playing in the playing the dozens and your mama jokes to the more so um, canonical work of uh, the scholar Henry Louis Gates uh, Jr.'s um, the signifying monkey, and so in this chapter, and again when I had read the, those. Coplas for the very first time as a grad student, that, you know, that immediately, that idea was immediately there. I was convinced of it. And so I stuck with it. And so that's what we have as the end product, as in result in chapter two. And so with the argument, and so thinking about the argumentation of the book, again, highlighting um, and centering Black resistance, agency, subversion, coupled with Africa, the presence of the African diaspora. That's what, you know, we see all of that. For me, at least, I see all of that um, playing out in Reynosa's uh, Coplas. And I think and with the title, The Birth, and, I, and, I, and I'm very purposeful with the title of this chapter, because it's important for you know those listening to know that there was an entire corpus in Portugal from Portuguese, um, a huge corpus of Fala de Preto or this Africanized Portuguese. And so for me, with the opening caveat, opening vignette that I um start chapter two with with you know the Portuguese and the and that and that opening scene from from um the Cancioneiro Geral um from the Resen Garcia de Resen's um songbook um from 1516 all of that's very purposeful in the sense that I'm Make, you know, making this case an argument that, okay, Habla de Negros, this Africanized Castilian, was big business, and it started with Reynosa in many ways, specifically in the Castilian context. And so in Reynosa's uh, Coplas, there are a lot of um, 
borrowings in words that come for what well, you know what's called lucism, lucismos, um, coming from Portugal. Um, and you know, when we think in a linguistic sense of you know language acquisition, and and when we think more broadly about okay, a person in the context of you know the you know these blacks, um, sub-Saharan Africans who are newly brought to you know Lisbon, and again, whether they're enslaved or free, they're they have to learn. Portuguese, they're learning Portuguese. And so with that representation of the Castilian, um, we see that, you know, the presence of a lot of uh, Portuguese, as well as a lot of very heavily marked um, sub-Saharan African um, root words, suffixes, prefixes, some, many of them of Bantu origin, so on and so forth. And so, again, I think that that all of those details and are really important for making sense of what Reynosa is doing. And I think in, in thinking about the and, and again, thinking more specifically about whiteness and, you know, this argument about how I might, you know, let whiteness off the hook um, throughout the book. Is that I was recently, you know, I was I, I was reading uh one of uh, I think it was, is the first you know book review that's been out, you know, of the book and and the reviewer that was one of the one of the very few um, sort of pushbacks or arguments that's not that wasn't convincing that I make in the book about you know Reynosa's sensibilities or sensitivities to and for about blacks specifically with the lack of bio information about his biography and again for me you know to be transparent Reynosa's biography is scant there's very little information about this man's life um and you know and even some of the foremost philologues here in Spain who have you know spent their life careers on Reynosa acknowledge that, and it's really hard you know to piece together um, Reynosa's biography. But I think you know the point that I'm trying to make here is that in this chapter, as I do with each of the chapters and my close readings and analysis, is that it's important to imagine, to recreate, and take these intellectual risks and leaps about hypotheticals, what could have happened or deduce from whether it's a high percentage of Blacks living in Seville or deduce from other um, pieces of data, information, whether it's archival documents, so on and so forth. You know, Reynosa, you know, the point being is that it's impossible, it's difficult for me to accept or believe that Reynosa didn't see, sense, rub elbows with um, Black people in Seville. Um, and so for me, that's another central element analysis in, in chapter two, is to really negotiate and take these intellectual risks and leaps about hypotheticals, what could have been happening 
because we have very little information about Reynoso's biography and his life, but because we do know that in Seville, the Black population was as high as 10 to 12%. Some historians even say 15%. Um, you know, we have to really, again, try to recreate um, historically what might have been playing out, um, you know, on the scene. And so in that chapter, that's really, that, for me, that's very vital, really important. Also highlighting um, doing a new analysis of food, of food studies and, and signaling and highlighting sub-Saharan African, Senegambian food culture as it's moving back and forth, up and down from, um, sub, from West Africa into Iberia. There's a lot of influence. There's new scholarship and from historians working on Atlantic Africa, you know, David Wheat. Um, Herman Bennett, Gabriel Rocha, who's showing us the complexity and the nitty gritty of, of Black life with fisheries and fishing and how that knowledge went back to Portugal and Lisbon and impacted Columbus. So yeah, so when I was writing this chapter, a lot of those things were on my mind and when necessary and when yeah, when necessary, you know, I wanted to really highlight and underline some of those elements, specifically with food and the movements of, you know, fish and certain culinary aesthetics. Yeah, the um, the really rich historical detail that you're able to bring in that um, kind of brings that world back to life in a vivid fashion was one of the really wonderful parts of that chapter. Um, so finally in, in chapter three, uh, which you've entitled black divas, black feminisms, the black female body and habla de negros and Lope de Rueda, um, you return to the stage to talk about two plays by the famous 16th century playwright Lope de Rueda. Um, so again, assuming that not all of the, the audience for this podcast is, uh, particularly steeped in Siglo de Oro Theater, um, maybe as an entry point, you could talk a bit about um, Lope de Rueda before delving into the particular argument that you make in this chapter about his plays Eufemia and, and Los Segangados. Absolutely. Let's see. So Lope de Rueda was a huge, a big star in the Renaissance. Um, he was from Seville, a Renaissance, you know, again, playwright, and Ren, excuse me, Lope de Rueda, for me, is you know really cool and fascinating because he, you know, there his theater pulls from and yeah pulls from and 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 portrays elements from the Comedia del Arte from the you know from coming from Italy. You know, he's doing he for me he portrays the people. In many ways, you get to sense and see the voices and lives of marginalized um, groups or people on the periphery of society. That doesn't mean to say, you know, that the elite and the aristocracy and nobility weren't uh, represented and, and portrayed in his um, 
in, in his theatrical works. But um, for me, that's those are some of the highlights and elements of um, Rueda's corpus that's, you know, really fascinating. Um, also with Rueda, he represents, you know, as far as, you know, teaching theater, you know, early modern Spanish theater, it's Rueda for me with respect to Habla de Negros is really interesting because he, unlike Lope de Vega, he's doing something. He, his representation of Blackness via Habla de Negros is quite different than what we get and what we see or what Lope de Vega shows us. And so in many ways, Lope de Rueda, because his plays, his comedias were so long, you know, they had, some of them had, you know, six and seven acts. Um, and they weren't unified and, and, you know, the plots, you know, were quite, you know, were different and sometimes, yeah. So in the characters, a lot of times, you know, didn't make sense. Um, and then when Lope de Rueda, again, in 1609, when he has his, you know, when he, when Lope de Vega, excuse me, Lope de Vega revamps the comedian and theater into three acts, you know, we get something very different. So for me, you know, I always have, I always enjoy, you know, working with Rueda for those reasons, um, for the verbosity and the, and the representation of um, figures and persons on, you know, on the, on the periphery um, of of Renaissance uh, Spanish society um, and also another final important note about Lope de Rueda is that inciting Cervantes from his prologue um, of the Los Ocho Comedias y Ocho Entremeses is that Lope de Rueda, again, because he was such a talented actor and, and, and such, he would, you know, for Black women characters, he would, you know, blacken up and cross-dress. So there's also that really interesting and fascinating um, element to his uh, corpus of work or his corpus of Habla de Negros text as well. Great. That was a, that was a wonderful summary. Thank you. Um, so then specifically in chapter three, you look at two of Lobedrueda's plays, um, called Eufemia and Los Engañados. Um, and maybe you could just briefly uh, outline what you argue about those two plays and, and how it connects to, again, your, your broader argument to your book. Oh, absolutely. So with these two plays, we're in, so with this, so with chapter three, it was important to me to represent um, gender and to link and to show the complexity and the intersection, the intersectionality um, between language, gender, sexuality, and race. Um, you know, the racialization of, of um, Black women. It was also in this chapter, I'm focusing on Black women specifically, or these these general, or at the time, this category of um, characters called um, negras, 
And so, in the, so again, in, in this third chapter, that was, you know, really important. I wanted, again, to highlight that the intersectionality that plays out, that manifests in these two um, skits, which are very different, or the representation of Black women in these two skits are very different, even though the two women speak in Habla de Negro. So with uh, Comedia Eufemia, we have the, this very sassy, witty, sharp tongue, quick tongue um, woman by the black woman by the name of um, Eulaya. And so for Eulaya, I pretty you know I say that she's a diva. No, I think for me that that category of you know diva. Um, fits well, it works well to describe her um, because with Eulaya's character and again, through the Habla de Negros language that she speaks, you know, she's all about all about looking good and cosmetic alterations, um, hair, uh, so on and so forth. And so the way in which so through the character of Eulaya, I do various close readings to to make a case for the ways in which Lope de Rueda, as this playwright, obviously who's a white man, is making sense of um of her gender, racially gendered blackness, um how Eulaya, for me, I see Eulaya through, excuse me, through Reda, Lope de Rueda's construction and orchestration, speaking back to um, societal expectations of, of her as a woman to, you know, being having to read, or excuse me, of having to get married, uh, so on and so forth. So there's so many really fascinating and rich ways in which Eulaya, yes, Eulaya subverts and utilizes makeup to to um, resist, to speak back to societal expectations, to make a strong case for herself that she is beautiful, so on and so forth. Um, and so that so in that section, that's where we have all of the information and the and I work through the category of black divas. And so with the black feminisms, I focus specifically on um, another another black woman character um, in Ruedas Los Engañados. And then we have in that text, we have we meet the character Guillomar and Guillomar is really fascinating because she's very, we we see the ways in which, again, Rueda incorporates and 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 accounts for what was happening historically at the time in Renaissance Seville, as an example. And what I mean by that is, with the slave trade, with the slave trading of and the trafficking of, of black bodies that was coming into 
Lisbon and then into Spain or directly into Seville via Portuguese merchants, there were enslaved Blacks who were royal, who came from royalty. Um, And so for me, at least in the close readings that I perform in the section on about Guillomar, I take seriously this so-called theatrical fiction of royalty, because in the scholarship, many, if not all, um, critics say that, you know, oh, through the Habla de Negros language that Guillomar speaks, she's just, you know, making up fake lands and fake royal sovereign kingdoms in Africa. And so, again, with the meticulous archival work that I do, specifically to perform the close readings about various terms and 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 in sovereign states and nations and, and lands that that Guillomar mentions, I, w- I, un- I unexpectedly found out that one of the terms that she uses was actually, in fact, a real place, a term that, again, many linguists and um, philologues just disregarded as not important, as not important, as insignificant. And so, again, for me, that's, you know, things that are, you know, really important in that chapter with highlighting um, Gilmar's agency, her, the ways in which she speaks back to authority, uh, so on and so forth. And I think altogether with Black feminisms, I for me, that element was really important because, again, in the scholarship, there had always been this focus on, specifically in comedia studies, on white women. And the narrative and the conversation within comedia studies and more broadly, um, early modern literary and cultural studies um, altogether, nine times out of 10, always and only focused on and told the stories and lives of, um, you know, white women, whether or not they were from the nobility or peasants or, you know, so on and so forth. And so for me in this chapter, that's another main intervention, um, that I make is that, okay, we need to take, it's important for us to take the representation and the presence of these black women characters seriously. Um, Also, it's important, again, thinking about methodology and intersectionality to incorporate just as much as, you know, it's valid and okay for us to analyze white women characters through a Rigorai or Chris Stave or Judith Butler. It's also important, valid and necessary for the field to read and to take seriously Black feminist studies. And so for me, um, that's what, you know, that's what chapter three does. That's what that chapter does. And that's what's at stake. Yeah, it's such a, it's a beautifully written chapter and and it's both theoretically sophisticated and the archival work um, is so rigorous and so impressive. The, I feel like you do this amazing job, not only of um, really enlivening the the characters, but also, you know, validating even what the characters have to say through that deep 
you know, uh, archival work that you that you just talked about. Um, so then just quickly, you know, in your afterward, you you as you mentioned with chapter one, you you have this move where you go from the early modern period and then you expand your vision out both temporally and geographically um, to look at 19th and 20th century Latin American poesia negra um, and then ritual songs and and scenes of trance possession. Um, and you ask, you know, whether we need to more seriously think about uh, what habla de negro signifies in a, in a sort of broader corpus of, of texts. And I was hoping that um, just by way of concluding our discussion of, of the book, you might uh, briefly summarize how you, how you try and answer this question in this, in this afterward. Um, or elaborate on what future avenues of study you think that asking this question opens up? Absolutely. So with the afterword, with the text, so not necessarily the text, but with that ethnographic work that, you know, I, that I've done and over the years and, and, in the materials, specifically thinking about Afro-Cuban, even Afro-Caribbean more broadly, but but specifically, you know, Afro-Cuban um, spirituality, religions, thinking about La Regla de Ocha, Lucumi, which more in colloquial terms is known as Santeria, um, also with 19th century spiritism that was um, very active and alive and well throughout the Caribbean and also in the United States and South America. That's inherited, that was created and inherited by Alan Kardec from France. Um, I It dawned on me, okay, so what can I say, what can we say about... Um, how this language could have sound, what did it, what could it sound like? What did it sound like? So on and so forth. And obviously that's <laughs> quite impossible to do um, because we have no recordings of um, early modern black voices. And so, but however, thinking about that early time period of enslavement in Cuba, by way of or via spirituality and Afro-Cuban religions, that's where I reach those um, conclusions, thinking about trance and when a priest or a medium is possessed or in trance by, again, possessed by a spirit who was a slave who or who was enslaved on a plantation in Cuba and they come down, you know, and, and that mount or that medium is in, in trance and they're speaking again in this marked Spanish, um, this habla de negros or more adequately, especially in the Cuban context, context, this bosal Spanish, you know, my will, in my mind, the gear started churning and moving and from there, 
I started bringing together other, again, ethnographic work and research that I had done and putting it in conversation with, um, with, with early modern habla de negros. And again, it's when you hear a person in trance use certain words and speak certain phrases, it's really uncanny and, and yeah, uncanny to see and sense the overlap in, in lexicon and vocabulary and words and structures, um, so on and so forth, that appear in the, in the various texts that I analyze and others that I don't work with in the book with, you know, when you think about, you know, what's being verbalized and spoken, um, you know, by someone in trance. And so that's for, again, in that afterward, that's the direction and the final thoughts that I, that I make. Well, so we've taken up a lot of your time. Um, I really appreciate how generous you've been um, in, in talking to me for so long. Um, before I let you go, though, I'd love to hear just a little bit about what you're working on now. Yes. So as I had mentioned earlier, my second monograph focuses on Black women, specifically in Iberia. So not just Spain or Castile, if you will, but also Portugal and in the kingdom of um, Valencia. And so with the second book, I'm looking at the politics of material culture, materiality, and making a case for, in one sense, that the treatment, representation of both real, quote-unquote, real-life historical Black women, as well as those representations of Black women that manifest, that appear in literary texts, is very, is, you know, very material. And so there's a lot of um, you know, materiality in the representation of, of Black women, but also a materiality in a historical context that these Black women acquire and use and at times also dispose of in order to navigate early modern Iberian society. And so, yeah, that's the, yeah, so in short, that's the second project. So again, it's a, it's a fully complete Iberian project where I'm not just working on Spanish texts, but also Catalonian texts as well as Portuguese texts and really centering, um, yeah, materiality and clothing and makeup, um, spaces as well, looking at domestic space, aquatic space, dance spaces, so on and so forth. It sounds like such a fascinating project. Um, I feel like it's really running deeply into trends in the field to to look at truly Iberian phenomena, not just Castilian. I can't wait to I can't wait to see how it develops. Um, so thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show today. I really got enjoyed getting to talk to you about. 
um, both Staging Habla de Negros as well as, as the second book. Um, and I hope you take care. Great. Thank you. Thanks for interviewing the opportunity.